Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Wadid Babitsky, who is Professor of Bioethics at the University of Montreal. Her research focuses on the ethics of genomics and reproduction. Welcome, Wadid. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So we have uh, sort of three buckets of topics to discuss, and I thought I'd start with your older papers. Uh, one of them from 2012, conceived and deceived. the medical interests of donor conceived individuals you say many donor conceived individuals want to know their genetic origins this has become a growing issue of public debate and bioethical concern some concentrate on their interest in donors medical and genetic information which can be relevant to medical decision making and others emphasize broader interest in donors personal information which could help uh, which could help donor conceived individuals construct their identities and thus promote their psychological well-being so this is a really complex issue right i mean there, there's a huge tension between the two cohorts here and um with um, with information based medical diagnosis medical treatment i think this is becoming more and more relevant right so So what is sort of your your view here what is sort of the right policy to pursue The bottom line answer to your question is my view is that we should um expect uh, open identity uh, sperm and egg donation that anonymity is not in the best interest of those anonymity of donors is not in the best interest of the children that we conceive and the adults that they will become Uh but you know the issues uh, go way beyond uh, medical. First of all to say most children or uh, let's call them uh, donor conceived individuals because by now a lot of them are uh, older uh adults and uh, some of them are starting their own families, right? They're having their own children. Um to say that most of them want to know is actually inaccurate. We don't know what most of them think because many of them do not know that they were donor conceived. 
So how can you actually do research on a population that you can't reach because they don't know they're a part of that population? So first of all, there's a huge issue in doing the kind of research that we would like to do to understand the preferences, values, concerns of this population. And we're talking potentially about hundreds of thousands of people around the world because uh, sperm donation has been around for decades. Egg donation has had a bit of history now. So many, many children around the world are, are conceived in this way. Um, and many parents still choose not to tell them that uh, there was a donor involved in their conception. Uh, I see that you have a follow-up question, so I'm going to let you ask. No, no. Um, so I'm just, I'm just thinking, um, Wadid, that you know. So the latest data I've seen is that the the population uh, growth rate is really slowing around the world. So what people worried about the 1950s is not a problem anymore. <laughs> um, and uh, the population is going to peak at around nine to nine point five billion between 2040 and 2100, and and then rapidly decline from it. Um, so this this um, general issue is going to get more and more prevalent, I would think, as we look forward 30, 40, 50 years into the future. Look, one thing that we're seeing is the increase in the rate of infertility. And this has many reasons. Some of them are environmental exposures. Uh, we know that male fertility is actually globally in a state of crisis. Um, many men are now diagnosed with infertility for various reasons. Um, women start uh, to reproduce later in life and fertility decreases with age. This is a social phenomenon, but it has a biological aspect. Um, for many, many reasons, some of them inexplicable, uh, there's more infertility. We're talking about, uh, it's, it's very difficult to define because how do you define infertility? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, how long should you engage in unprotected sexual intercourse and not conceive in order to be diagnosed as infertile, right? That's another social question. In some places it's 12 months, in other it's two years. Some places you can start fertility treatments after six months of not conceiving. So the definition in itself is problematic, but let's say that around one in 10 uh, individuals are infertile. When these people go, uh, if they really want to have uh, biologically related children and they, they get into fertility treatment and IVF, some of them will end up needing sperm donation or egg donation. So as infertility rates increase, eventually the use of donor gametes, sperm and egg, will also increase. Uh, and so this is not an issue that is going anywhere. Um, it's only going to increase, looks like. Potentially, uh, unless we find some new uh, treatments. Uh, for example, for men, uh, we now know how to insert one sperm, sperm into the egg. So men that previously were considered completely infertile now can become genetic fathers because all it takes is one sperm that is forced into the egg. Uh, so sometimes we find technical solutions to overcome uh, what was before considered infertility. But for some people, we don't, uh, these solutions don't work and we end up uh, going forward with uh, gamete donation. So yeah, I don't think that the issue is going away. Yeah, so, so let me uh, go back to the ethical question here. So I can understand from the donor's perspective uh, the privacy concerns the donors might have. Um, and I can understand from the, the donor-conceived individual's perspective what he or she wants to know. 
from a medical perspective though, doesn't that individual carry all the information? In other words, does that person really need to know where he or she came from, uh, from a medical and genetic perspective? I mean, a blood test would tell them where they came so from, right? Let's unpack what you just said, because that, that there was a lot of information there. For the donors, uh, the concern about privacy is also linked to legal issues. If there is no legal framework that says you are just a donor, you are not a father or a mother, you may end up with some liability. Uh, so it's very important where a, a GAMI donation is permitted to have the family law structures in place that protect you from being identified someday as an actual parent with obligations towards your offspring. And this has happened. Uh, so that's one uh, comment to make. Now, privacy concerns, if you're someone who wishes to never be contacted, for example, by someone who is genetically related to you, but that you never meant to parent, uh, my response to that would be, well, then don't donate. Uh, because we have to put the interests of donor-conceived individuals ahead of those of donors and parents. And therefore, if you're not understanding that this is a lifelong journey, don't become a donor. It's a lifelong journey also because I would expect donors to update their medical information over the years. Uh, many donors are young when they donate, so medical issues have not emerged yet. If uh, you donate in your early 20s and in your late 30s or mid 40s, you're diagnosed with a genetic disease, I would expect you to go back to the uh, uh, database. Uh, we need one for that. And insert your new uh, diagnosis or medical information so that the families created with your sperm have better information for their own children um, and can you know, better prevent and treat and diagnose conditions as they emerge. So the medical issue is, is very, very important. Um, what responsibilities do medical professionals carry? I would say in the early days of, especially of sperm donation, before we even uh, had egg donation, um, the view was that this is just circumventing uh, infertility and we don't have to tell the children anything. We should actually hide it from the children because we don't want to make things complicated for them. Right? They, they, they thought, oh, this might complicate the relationship with uh, the parent who is not biologically related. It might create identity issues. Let's just hide it. And that was the advice given to parents. Just never talk about it. It never happened. Um, but these things end up being revealed. You know, family secrets uh, have a tendency of being revealed and uh, sometimes at the worst possible moment, at the time of divorce at the time of a crisis, after the death of a parent, when you can't talk to them anymore, you can't ask questions. So this uh, rationale of let's just hide it and pretend it didn't happen is not working. Um, yeah, so the advice today is, is to tell and to tell as early as possible. And so yeah. I think the me medical professionals should communicate that to, to parents, to prospective parents, and make sure the structures are in place to do it right. Just be pushed on that, um, just just for debate. <laughs> and so, so there, there are two things there. One is the medical issue. If technology advances sufficiently that just you carry, the individual carries all the genetic information needed, and we don't have to go to parents, we don't go to the grandparents and so on, uh, then the information is complete. 
um, that doesn't require from a medical perspective to have a genetic um, ancestry, you know, sort of laid out. So uh, I don't think technology is there now, but technology could be there, right? So the, the technology problem could go away in the future, let's say. But the social problem doesn't, as you say. Um, in the, you know, some sort of discontinuity, divorce, death, and so on, all information is revealed to the individual in sort of a, you know, in, in one uh, shock, so to speak. Uh, and then that, that has deleterious effects on the individual too. Um, so I'm sort of conflicted uh, where the optimum lies between these two spectrum. Uh, these two spectrum meaning the donor's privacy and legal requirements and the donor-conceived individual's need to know the information. So let me say a few words about the first half of what you said and then the second half. The first half that is this. Even if in a few years we all walk around with our entire genome sequence on a chip in our wallet, and that's just the starting point of any medical appointment, even in that scenario, family history is still valuable. It's one thing to know your genome. It's another thing to know uh, what your parents and grandparents died of and at what age. Because a lot of uh, what we learn from the genome is risk information. It's not certainty. It's, it's a level of penetrance, right? Um, and so knowing your family history will still be valuable even in a world where everybody's completely sequenced. That's the first thing. The second point is that your argument can be flipped over. If we're all sequenced, then the fact of non-genetic relatedness will become obvious. There will be no way of hiding this anymore. Actually, today already, people who know that their donor conceived are finding their donors online through the code that was used in the sperm bank, for example, through 23andMe testing that you know tells you who your relatives are, uh, through social media. So a lot of clinicians are saying, you know, anonymity is dead. We promise donors anonymity, but in fact, they will be found. So let's stop promising something we can't respect. Let's not make promises we can't keep. So the more we have genetic information, the, the more we learn about our own genomes, the less we can actually have this disconnect between donor and offspring. So in a way, what you're saying is actually going to flip the, the picture over. Now let's go uh, to the, the second portion of what you said, which is the social issues. Um, my response to this would be, yes, some donor-conceived individuals want to know where they came from for psychosocial and identity reasons, not just for medical reasons. Um, but this can be solved by banning anonymity uh, completely at the legal level. So there are several jurisdictions around the world, for example, Sweden, uh, the United Kingdom, Australia, where you just can't donate anonymously anymore. And therefore, uh, you, you, the donors make no assumptions of anonymity. They know right from the beginning that they, uh, their information will be kept, that it will be revealed to the child after the age of 18, and that they might get a phone call at some point or not. But they understand the consequences of the donation and they're willing to take this on. I think that's the way we should go. So from a policy perspective, though, if you believe that, you know, we have growth rates declining, we have infertility as a major issue for humanity, 
what, what would you think the optimum policy might be? I, I would imagine people are less willing to donate if, if they cannot do it, um, you know, uh, without the information tied to it. Um, so some research has actually demonstrated that that's not true. Um, in places like Sweden, that was the first country in the world to ban anonymity. There was a drop in the number of donors, but then it picked up again. But the donors were slightly different. Uh, they were a little older, they were better informed, uh, and they were not worried or concerned about you know, their identity being revealed later. So they were in sort of in a different stage in life, different state of mind. Um, campaigns to increase uh, donation rate work, and they can compensate for the initial drop that happens after anonymity uh, is banned. And even if we lose some donors, I still argue that we should prioritize the interests of the generation we're creating, um, even if it creates sh shortage uh, of gametes for a while or for good, because we should only use this technology and this, uh, this procedure if we're doing it right, if we're doing it in an ethically responsible way. So I want to go into another, another topic that we have written a lot about, and that is non-invasive prenatal testing identifying key clinical, ethical, social, legal, and policy issues. So in one of your papers from 2015, you say, the current clinical status of non-invasive prenatal testing, NIPT, and its implementation uh, presents key points for guidelines currently provided by professional societies. Um, you discuss uh, the ethical and legal implications of NIPT. So before we get the details of this, what exactly is NIPT? Um, so for many, many, for several decades now, we have been able to obtain uh, fetal DNA, DNA from the fetus, by doing invasive tests. So amniocentesis, almost everybody has heard about it. You insert a needle through the belly into the uterus and you remove amniotic fluid and there's some DNA in the, in the fluid and you get it from there or you can do it um, vaginally uh, in a different method. But these tests uh, carry a risk of miscarriage because they're invasive and the uterus is meant to be a very well-protected environment, obviously, biologically. Uh, once you insert something into that environment, there's risk of infection and other things, and there's a certain um, risk of miscarriage, losing the pregnancy. Um, Therefore, we have developed what we call screening tests. That's a blood test from the pregnant woman that gives you just a, a chance, a risk, a level of risk that the fetus might have a problem. And so we screen uh, the majority of women and only those who have higher risk get the invasive test in order not to, uh, to take on the risk of miscarriage. What we've been looking for for a long time was a way to obtain fetal DNA through a blood test. So we were looking for fetal DNA circulating in maternal blood, and everybody was looking for fetal cells. But a big discovery from 97 uh, allowed this new generation of tests, and that's the discovery that in our blood, there's not just cells, there's also pieces of broken uh, DNA from uh, cells that, that have died, or it's just uh, what you call a free circulating DNA. It's not within cells, it's just tiny fragments of DNA. Turns out that when you're pregnant, very early on, around eight, nine weeks of pregnancy, up to 10% of this uh, free-floating DNA in your blood comes from the 
uh, placenta, which is identical to the fetus. So these new tests allow through a blood test to sort of reconstruct uh, the genetic makeup of the fetus and diagnose uh, chromosomal or uh, DNA level uh, problems or conditions. Um, the technology is not yet at 100%. Well, it is for sex, for fetal sex. If it's male or female, you can tell for sure uh, with this technology. But for many other conditions, it's not diagnostic yet. It's not 100%, but it's much, much better than the previous screening tests we've had. So, for example, for Down syndrome, trisomy 21, it's over 99.7% accuracy with this test. And it can be done earlier in the pregnancy than previous tests and it's much more reliable and it's safe. So this is, uh, a lot of people see this as the holy grail of prenatal genetic testing, uh, something that is actually taking over the world very fast. It's the fastest emerging genetic technology in the world right now. Uh, it's a market of billions of dollars because these tests, you know, uh, in many countries are still uh, paid for out of pocket. They're not a part of national insurance as many, in many countries. Um, and there, this is changing sort of the landscape of uh, pregnancy care, because now more and more women are going for this test rather than the old pathway of screening the old way and then invasive testing. Women go directly for this and it gives them much better information much earlier in the pregnancy. Yeah, I, I love blood tests. Um, yeah, you know, if you can draw a little bit of blood and you can get information from it, um, it uh, avoids sort of complications. Um, so, uh, is, is the, so the technology you say uh, within eight weeks, about 10% of what you see in the blood, 10% of it uh, could be the fetal DNA. And that allows us to do some diagnosis. Um, Screening. Screening. Uh, it's, it's important not to call it diagnosis yet in order not to mislead people. Yeah. because it's only screening and it requires a confirmation through an invasive test at this point in time. Yeah, so that's what I want to get to. So uh, if this is widely available to all over the world, 8.4 billion people, and it could become sort of a standard of care, right? So if you're pregnant, you go to do a blood test around six weeks, let's say, I'm just making this up. I don't, I don't know what the protocols are. <laughs> You're not and, currently pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not currently pregnant. Uh, but the you know, six weeks data uh, comes back in a report that says these are the risks that the baby is going to have. Actually, let's put correct numbers on this. You could go yeah. for this test at uh, nine or 10 weeks, which for many know. women is the time they discover that they are pregnant. So actually, okay. when to confirm that you're pregnant, you know, you do a, uh, you do an at-home pregnancy test usually, and then you go to confirm this through a blood test, and you could actually use the same blood test just to confirm that you're pregnant to get this test, and you can get responses within a few days. So you're still within your first trimester when you get this uh, genetic information about your fetus. Technically, this could be used for whole genome sequencing. So Technically, you could be at 11 weeks, totally first trimester, and already have the entire genome of your fetus, just to give us a sense of how powerful this is. 
Yeah, so, so I was just worrying about, uh, not worrying, or right? just uh, trying to ask sort of the policy aspect here. So within the first trimester, you do a blood test, out comes a, a report that says these are the various risks that the baby has, let's say. Um, and then there's sort of decisions the mother and the family have to make. Um, I'm, I'm not just thinking about the U.S. or Canada. I'm thinking about the worldwide. So if it becomes, you know, sort of prevalent all around the world, do you see any issues with that with that process? Where to begin? <laughs> um, so first of all, uh, one question that emerges is what kind of conditions will uh, pregnant people, couples, families want to know? If you have to do an invasive test that carries a risk, you limit this to what you would consider a serious condition or something that you might consider terminating your pregnancy uh, for. Um, if there's no risk, um, if it becomes cheaper and cheaper, and if it's so early in the pregnancy, why not learn more and more and more? Um, the more you learn, uh, the harder the decision becomes. So we have to understand that for um, most of uh, prenatal genetic testing has been targeting trisomies. It was chromosome testing, right? Trisomy 21, which, you know, today um, people lead long, happy lives uh, with this condition. Kids go to regular schools. Uh, people get jobs. Uh, it's, it's limiting for sure. It requires extra care, but families report uh, being very happy raising children with trisomy 21. Uh, so you can already see that this is a complicated decision to make, and it's not easy to communicate to pregnant uh, people and to families the complexity around, on one hand, it's a, it has medical aspects, it has social aspects, there's a cognitive deficit, developmental delay. There's a lot of information to convey for just one condition. Now make that five conditions. Now make it 3,000 conditions. How are we going to communicate under time pressure, right? Because the, the decision is continue the pregnancy or terminate the pregnancy. So we have time pressure and we have unbelievable amounts of information to communicate about multiple conditions. Some of them your future child will definitely have. Some of them is just increased risk. Think of BRCA, uh, the, the mutations associated with increased risk of uh, breast cancer doesn't mean your future daughter will have breast cancer. It just means she'll have greater risk than the general population. So imagine communicating about different conditions and different levels of risk, some certain, some only a chance. What do we mean in that context? People will make informed choices. How will their choices be informed when there's really not a chance that we will be able to communicate all this to them when they're not professionals, not geneticists, and we have to start from scratch. So this is something that keeps a lot of clinicians up at night. This is a powerful technology, but how will it actually translate into medical care? That's going to be extremely complicated. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, the problem is I think worse than that in the sense that suppose the technology advances and I can determine what the IQ, weight, height, uh, and other parameters of the baby going to be, uh, not precisely, but with some probabilistic expectations. 
and then you know there's a decisions decision around that too right so um once the technology is out of the bag you can pull it back in some sense so uh, there is a lot of information in your blood it's very clear uh, and if 10% of it is driven by uh, by the by the baby's dna in the first trimester uh, it 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 can it cannot be just disease states or possibilities of diseases. It could also be performance characteristics in the future. Then then the decisions become really really complex. Yeah. So when we discussed uh, conditions, um, I was actually thinking about either a problem at the level of the chromosome, like an added uh, chromosome trisomy three instead of two or what we call monogenic diseases. There's a mutation in one gene, and we know that it's going to cause a disease or increase the risk of a disease. What you are talking about are conditions where many genes are responsible for one trait. Uh, our height is controlled by many genes, the interaction between these genes and the interaction with the environment. Uh, what food is uh, the pregnant woman eating? What food will I get as a baby? All of this is involved in determining my height. So for some of these complex traits, uh, knowing, uh, having this genetic information is not enough. It's much more complicated than that. Uh, but you're right that some people might try to, you know, select the identity of future children, even uh, with uncertainty and just with, uh, you know, chances. Uh, this obviously raises issues related to eugenics. Uh, we have lived through very dark times in our history where um, there was a social effort to design society uh, on the basis of genetics, encourage certain peoples to reproduce, uh, sterilize forcibly other people or even kill them so that they do not reproduce. Uh, we're talking about the Nazi era and even eugenic efforts in the early 20th century in the US and Canada and other parts of the Western world. So we're very scarred by this history. We're very concerned about the notion of deciding who deserves to be born and who doesn't uh, meet the standard of entry into human society based on genetics. We're very uh, uh, beyond concerned. Uh, any technology that takes us down that path um, makes us uh, often pause, rethink, and potentially hit the brake. And this technology definitely will have the power to do some of that, at least for some complex traits. Uh, so a lot of people are very worried about it. A lot of articles are being written about it. And the work that our research team does is about how to develop policy that would mitigate these concerns. We want to let people have the freedom to test their fetuses uh, for, you know, anything they want, no question mark, but how do we as a society create the structures that uh, mitigate the, this type of abuse of the technology? That's what we're working on. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with policy, though, is that we have 200 different countries. They have sovereign rights to make their own policies. Uh, we have a large country in the East who wanted just male <laughs> babies for a while. Um, you know, if gender could be determined uh, this way, uh, it would have been fascinating for that regime to, to implement it um, at scale. So actually, um, thank you for opening this up because um, you know that there's a currently in India and China uh, gender imbalance already. 
Um, and that didn't require NIPT. That was based on uh, ultrasound uh, induced terminations and even killing babies after birth. Uh, and so now there's a real imbalance in society that's causing havoc at a social level. Um, and NIPT is already used illegally, for example, in India, because India banned uh, fetal sex determination and abortions based on sex. Uh, but because the technology is so simple, some companies would send somebody to your home to get the blood test and the sample would be sent uh, internationally to another country and you can get your results online. So there are actually ways to circumvent legal prohibitions to get the gender, to, to the sex of your fetus. Um, so you're right. Uh, uh, the world is, uh, there are different jurisdictions with different laws, but people find ways to shop around uh, what we call uh, reproductive tourism and uh, uh, go other go elsewhere to get what they want. Yeah, so, so when you think about policy, I want to ask you sort of a broad question. Um, you know, sort of nation-based policy is not going to be optimum, right? Um, you need some sort of an international organization that determines policy uh, for society, right? I mean, you could have, you know, US, Canada, EU, about a billion people determining some policy, but you've got 7.4 billion people out there uh, who may not actually adhere to it. And so do you see a role like a United Nations or something like that, some worldwide body determining policy? That would be ideal, but I don't think it's possible. Um, you know, there's another technology that uh, poses uh, these types of threats, and that's gene editing, CRISPR. Everybody's talking about this technology now. And a few weeks ago, um, the WHO actually released uh, a document that provides glo uh, guidelines, recommendations for global governance of this technology. Uh, because the thought of editing uh, the DNA of embryos, you know, this actually might change the course of human evolution. It's obviously a global issue, not a, a national issue. And so they proposed uh, principles for global governance. But this would always remain on a voluntary basis. You cannot force certain uh, laws or regulations on, uh, on a nation state, on a, on a jurisdiction. So it's really nice to have these global level documents and recommendations at the end of the day, it will be up to uh, states, countries to make their own decisions. I don't think there's any chance that we will actually have uh, global regulation of these technologies, despite the fact that they determine the face of future society. I mean, there's an incentive problem too, right? So suppose some country XYZ, so let's say the technology exists to determine what the baby's IQ is going to be. And some XYZ country out there uses that technology to produce, you know, a population that is of a higher IQ, let's say. Uh, there's nothing the world could do about it, right? I mean, you, you could still have, you know, sort of ethical policy constraints in some parts of the world, but that's not really going to be effective when there are sovereign rights to countries to do whatever they want. True. And in fact, a few weeks ago, uh, a story broke in the media uh, about a uh, Chinese-based company, BGI, um, that does uh, probably the biggest provider of NIPT in the world, also sells NIPT in Europe and other countries, 
Uh, so millions and millions of Chinese women went through the test, and it turns out that their DNA uh, has been shared with the government and that the technology was actually supported by uh, the military, which means possibly military objectives. So you see uh, how it's, it could be so easy in certain regimes and in certain jurisdictions to abuse abuse this power and use the technology, not even for the purpose that it was uh, executed for. This was not for the fetus. This was a way of collecting DNA uh, from individuals, car, uh, future and, uh, and existing. So this is extremely scary. Uh, but as you said, um, the best that we can do is educate, create these global guidelines, hope that countries choose to adhere to them. Uh, we can always, you know, create sanctions uh, if it gets to that point that we feel that there's there's a, a strict violation of human rights. But other than that, yeah, it's going to remain at, at a national level and we will probably see some level of abuse of this technology in some parts of the world. So I want to finish up with uh, COVID-19. <laughs> uh, there's a little bit of a um, uh, people have been hearing a lot about COVID-19, but um, so, so what you're talking about here, so, so you have a, uh, I guess, a survey a paper, COVID-19 science is being both done and circulated at a furious pace. So we have seen this problem for about 18 months. Uh, everybody was worried about the, worried about the disease. A lot of research was done. Everybody was, you know, sort of excited to put out the, the latest and greatest research out there. Um, and, and sometimes some of those didn't pan out, create a lot of confusion. And then we have our great uh, news uh, broadcasts um, who are able to um, able to <laughs> able to push it out there if it actually serves their purpose. So, so we have this problem of information, right? It's sort of a conflict between information and, in some sense, science. Uh, so, so where are we in sort of the COVID-19 science? Um, this, the main issue uh, was how fast the science was evolving. So first of all, the issue of um, misinformation, the crisis in trust in science is something that was existed way before the pandemic. Um, you know, I, Let's just remember that uh, scientists were demonstrating out on the street all over the world during the Trump administration, uh, asking for just recognition um, that what they do is not just, you know, generate yet another opinion, but they are collecting facts. Um, so the issue of um, how to communicate the scientific process what it is, what scientific knowledge is to the public, uh, you know, predates COVID. What happened during the pandemic was two things. First of all, our life depended on good science communication. Um, if people didn't believe that there is scientific evidence for wearing masks, they didn't. If they didn't uh, buy the latest uh, public health measures, as scientifically based and uh, worthy of their effort, they tried to circumvent them. Uh, and now we see this, of course, with vaccine hesitation and anti-vax movement. We, 
you know, the miracle happened that we have the good, effective and safe vaccines, but people won't use them. Uh, so the first issue, the, the first thing that COVID did was it made science communication urgent and important to our actual survival as individuals and as a society. So it wasn't, it was no longer, oh, it would be really good if people understood better what public health is and what is the genetic basis of disease or how scientists actually do research. All of a sudden it became, if we don't know how to communicate this right now, people will not follow the guidelines and uh, hospitals will be uh, overburdened and more people will die by the thousands or the millions. So it became so urgent. The second that happened, thing that happened was that our knowledge um, evolved so fast that what was recommended last week all of a sudden was no longer the best data and we had to change the recommendations at one point in the pandemic almost on a daily basis. Let me remind you that uh, back in March 2020, we didn't even tell people to wear masks yet. We said, oh, if you're sick, wear a mask, but if you're asymptomatic, you don't have to. We didn't know how far our breathing traveled. What's the right distance? One meter, two meters, how many feet? Uh, there was a lot of confusion. Uh, we thought that the virus lived on surfaces and people used to wipe all their groceries with, you know, with alcohol. We just didn't know because it was a new virus and we were learning very fast. As a result, the recommendations about how to behave, the public health measures, changed constantly. Now, if you're a lay person, you know, anyone from the public, and you hear your politicians or your public health authorities tell you, no need for a mask yesterday, and next week, yes, need for a mask. They tell you one meter, two meters. Wipe it, don't wipe it. <laughs> Inside, outside. What happens when the vaccine arrives? You say, ah, oh, they change their mind all the time. That means they don't know what they're talking about then maybe they're not trustworthy when it comes to the vaccine. Um, the sad thing is that the message changed because we were being responsible and we were, we were responding to the evolving data. But how do you communicate that? That we're not changing our opinion because we don't know what we're talking about. We're changing the approach based on the best available data every day. That's a complicated message uh, that created a huge challenge for all of us. Yeah, so it's not necessarily lack of information. It's So when we think about education here, um, there is a sort of a scientific process, right? You, you take data, you process it, you, you make a decision. Most often the decisions are probabilistic in nature, not deterministic. Um, and when the data changes, um, those decisions could change. So there is a sort of a lack of education in the scientific process arena. And I feel like um, sometimes scientists are really bad at this too, because they go out there and say, hey, I found something. And we, we have a crisis in replication in science, as you know. Um, and I, I did some work uh, in pharmaceutical industry. The therapeutic index, efficacy over toxicity, is highest on the day of approval. And as we get more and more data, it continues to decline over time. So um, scientists have a tendency to use data to fit the model in, in every 
every scientific discipline. Uh, and so that is sort of coming back and bite us in some way, right? Absolutely. Now, the thing is we had the fast evolving uh, level of confidence in what we knew. And I think that pushed uh, a lot of scientists, a lot of public health officials, and definitely trickled down to the politicians to sound more confident than we were supposed to. The, the messaging was complicated enough without saying, it's probably good to wear a mask. <laughs> you should most likely gather indoor, outdoors, if at all. We wanted more clarity. And the reality of the scientific process, as you just said, is that it takes a long time before we replicate over and over again to increase our level of confidence. We didn't have the time for that to happen. So we just ran quickly to the public with new findings. Papers were published uh, faster than ever. Peer review uh, was probably worse than ever because things were so rushed. Um, and, and, and the, the, the knowledge, uh, the, the field was new. Uh, so the scientific pro process, I'm not saying it was compromised, but it was under a lot of pressure and generated a lot of things that, you know, had a, a certain uh, likelihood of being true, but it needed more time and more support. At the same time, the message to the public, we wanted it to be as clear as possible while being honest, we just didn't want to generate more confusion. So you can see how all these things, the time pressure, the, the threat of the pandemic, the absolute necessity of communicating all this to the public in real time, the fast evolution and the different levels of certainty about what we know, all of that just created an almost impossible scenario for good science communication. And I think that under these circumstances, we did the best that we could, but there's a lot of lessons that we can learn. And maybe the number one lesson is to be honest and to be transparent, not to try to simplify things, because as you said, this comes back to bite you. You try to simplify and sound more confident that you are. A month later, you learn that it wasn't true and you look like a, look like a fool. Uh, it turns out that you've decreased the level of trust instead of slowly building trust. So. Just be honest about what you know, uh, even if that means that the message is complicated and maybe less people will completely digest it. Yeah, and there's sort of competence issue here. So, you know, you guys in Canada have uh, potentially more uh, educated politicians than we have in the US. Um, we, um, I mean, if you went to undergraduate business school, perhaps you don't understand science that well. And so recommending hydroxychloroquine or you know putting laser into your body and stuff like that may not be, may not be, a, may not be the right thing to do. Uh, so before you prescribe something on air, you really have to go and understand what, what you're trying to do, right? Yeah, and um, some of my colleagues uh, here in Canada and in the US are actually doing research on what is the best way to communicate these complex uh, notions and uh, pieces of information to the public, to those who do not have scientific background? Because we can actually study these things, right? We can communicate in two different ways and then check which one worked better. And that's what we're trying to do, develop strategies for science communication in the context of a pandemic, in this complex landscape that I just described, in order to be the most effective. It obviously involves social media, 
It involves learning how to package pieces of information in a way that is uh, effective and accessible, how to circulate and push that information in order to counter the misinformation and the conspiracy theories that are out there, uh, how to speak to people who are hesitating, who are, you know, have who have low levels of trust versus people who, you know, are already with you, you're preaching to the choir. Uh, so there are many strategies that are being validated as we go. And I hope that if we ever find ourselves in a similar crisis, we will rely on these strategies right from the beginning to do a better job all along and use everything that we've learned this time around. Yeah, the communication aspect is really interesting. Um, it is sort of a difficult, really difficult problem to solve. So from a scientific perspective, everything is always probabilistic in nature. So if you go out, out there, as you say, you say, you know, there is a probability things will happen. People are going to say that person doesn't know what, what he or she is talking about. And a politician goes out and say, go drink bleach, you know, you will be, uh, you'll be cured. And that's so precise, their recommendation, right? So uh, are scientists sort of, um, I'm just wondering what the right solution is because a, a true scientist is never going to go out there and say, I know this for sure, because there's really nothing out there for sure. There is some probabilistic expectation of things. Some things are for sure. For example, the fact that there is a coronavirus. You know, I still get uh, uh, messages or tweets from people who are saying it was just the flu. There is no coronavirus. You guys just made it up. So, no, there are some facts <laughs> that we can confirm. Um, I think one solution is to try and close the gaps between the different framings. I think often scientists would agree uh, in the core but they would frame the information differently. And that creates the appearance of disagreement. Uh, so what we have done in various countries is create um, panels or groups uh, of experts, not just scientists, also public health uh, um, experts, bioethicists, create groups that discuss and come to a consensus, to an agreement on how to present the information. And then they release a report that they wrote together. So this was done on many aspects of the pandemic. These reports were very influential, helped decision makers a lot. Um, so that's one approach for you know, closing these gaps that you talked about. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of deciding what is what got to the uh, level of reliability that it's time to release it and what needs to still stay uh, you know, indoors because we're still working on it. But you're doing all of this on an evolving basis. So there's not going to be easy solutions, um, but there are some strategies that have been employed and again, that we can refine uh, and develop for the future. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is recommendations will change as new information arrive. And that is part of science. So if, if you know somebody believes something from 100 years ago and has never changed, that is not really a good trait because it just means that you're not using the latest information to, to challenge the set of beliefs that one might have, right? Um, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, look, when, when it came when it came to COVID, uh, almost all the information was new. Well, we know we know of course how to deal with infectious diseases 
public health uh, um, guidelines have been around for <laughs> many, many years. It's not like we have we had to uh, invent the field of public health or public health ethics. But because the virus was new, everything we knew about it was new. Um, this did create this issue of how to cope with people who are just stuck in their ways and just refuse to accept that we're dealing with something new. Um, what exacerbated it, we all know, is social media. Because social media creates the opportunities for people to talk only to people that think like them, right? Whether it's Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, you end up um, surrounding yourself with people who reinforce what you already thought before. And you sort of exclude people who come with other ideas. Um, so, so this really um, helped conspiracy theories, anti-vax uh, groups gain force during the pandemic and create a real public health crisis uh, that, that is now playing out with the vaccines. So yes, that, this problem has been around, but the pandemic exacerbated it greatly. So in conclusion, um, I, I want to ask you uh, one question. So what is the role that education institutions can play in this information dissemination? I mean, it's one thing to teach graduate students. Uh, uh, they, they have some foundational knowledge um, to, to take information, process it. But when you think about general public, what, what the sort of, uh, what education, I, I know that you're doing a lot of work in this area, but what is the role of education institutions to really bring up um, you know, we're not all trying to make them PhDs or anything like that, but we want to bring up the general knowledge of the public. So, so what, what, do you, what would you focus on that, focus? So several things. First of all, people who are comfortable speaking uh, in the media, giving uh, interviews to newspapers, um, uh, being interviewed on radio and television, doing podcasts like this one, writing blogs, people who are comfortable doing that, I think should really do that. It takes away time from research. It's maybe, uh, you know, you pay a price in terms of your career because we're supposed to publish and get grants. But the social responsibility is so important to just use existing media and social media to pass on well-informed, well-framed, uh, well-argued messages to educate the public. So again, if you know how to write a good tweet and you're an expert in a certain field, start tweeting in your field. Become the expert on Twitter for good, reliable information in your little niche. Um, but, but not everybody has the, uh, the, the capacity to communicate in sound bites, to package what they know in a way that is very accessible. So those who can, I think, should really uh, take on this burden and do it and do it regularly. Another thing that universities can do, and they did during COVID, is uh, create the opportunity to engage with the public through webinars and public events. So many universities offered free public virtual events on the topic of the day. What do we know right now about the virus? What, uh, what public health measures we should respect and why? What are, how do the vaccines work? Why do we say that they're safe? Whatever is the issue is in the media at the time, create an event where you bring the best experts and you discuss and you take questions from the public. Um, uh, and of course, uh, virtual events made this globally accessible and very cheap to do for free um, without like charging people to participate. 
So there are so many things that we can do as educational institutions and as experts, as individual experts, to kind of rebuild the trust in science and increase the general level of uh, uh, you know, education about science in the public. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Wardy. Uh, Thanks so much uh, for spending time with me. Thank you for your excellent questions and comments. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.